I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about people. Most entrepreneurs I've met have one thing in common. They don't want to talk to anyone. They want to make decisions and build products and raise money and hire and write humbled and honored to be on Fast Company's 100 Most Innovative Companies list on LinkedIn, but they want to do it all from arm's length. Ideally from like Guam or Montana or Peru or somewhere else that continues to drive home how different they are from someone working at Deloitte. They do say they're customer-driven. They know that's important, but they usually conflate being customer-driven with being data-driven. They talk about how their product will eventually collect all sorts of insights about customers that they'll then push back into their business through a tight feedback loop so that they can move fast and iterate and improve. But speaking with customers face-to-face or over a Zoom call isn't going to happen. They reason with themselves by saying it'll take too much time or it's too hard or no one wants to speak to them or they already know what customers will say anyway. The real reason they don't want to speak with potential customers is simple. Most entrepreneurs tie their startup ideas to their self-worth. When you tie your idea to your self-worth, opening yourself up to calls with customers who might not be all that interested in your startup idea feels like you're opening yourself up to conversations with people who might not be all that interested in or impressed by you. Humans will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid even mild discomfort, and we're most fragile about stuff we tie our identities to. So a huge percentage of entrepreneurs operate with their heads in the sand like they're an ostrich. By the way, I must have used that phrase in an earlier episode because a few weeks ago, someone emailed me with the subject line, fact check in all caps, which immediately made my heart nearly explode. But when I opened the email, it was just a guy saying that ostriches don't actually put their heads in the sand in kind of a snooty tone too, if we're being honest. Actually, he wrote, when threatened, ostriches typically run away, reaching speeds of 43 miles per hour. And if they can't run for some reason, they'll just lie flat on the ground and blend in until they're almost invisible. Well, all right. I think there's like an 85% chance that email was written by an ostrich. But even if it wasn't, whoever does PR for ostriches needs to step it up because I'm pretty sure everyone thinks they just stick their heads in the sand when anything goes wrong. Anyway, an odd thing I've noticed over the years at Tacklebox is that the most successful entrepreneurs tend to be the ones who don't see themselves as entrepreneurs. They call themselves reluctant entrepreneurs or unlikely entrepreneurs. Starting a company was usually not something they ever envisioned. I've even had to aggressively push some of the best ones to leave their jobs to spend more time on this thing that's clearly working because they're endlessly skeptical about the business and the idea of them running it. The founder of one Tacklebox company that's currently doing over $5 million in yearly revenue calls himself a, quote, involuntary founder. He never wanted to do it. Since entrepreneurship isn't linked to these founders' identities, they're free to try all sorts of stuff because when something doesn't work, it's a failure of the idea, not of their identity as an entrepreneur, because that doesn't exist. They also don't tie themselves to a specific vision of the business. They don't come into the experience saying, I'm going to build an affordable juicer. They come into it saying, it is a pain in the ass to find healthy meals on the go outside of major cities. And then they see if there are any customers with that problem that are worth their time. If there aren't, they move on. 
My old boss, who invested in some of the most successful medtech businesses of all time, said that the superpower for great entrepreneurs wasn't that they could see the future, it was that they saw the present with higher resolution and clarity than anyone else. They saw things how they really were, what people did, what they were motivated by, and where the tools that were supposed to help them reach their goals fell short. This allowed them to better realize how they'd react to anything new and build accordingly. The way to predict the future, my boss said, was to know with enormous fidelity what people did now and why. If your identity is mixed up in that, you're not going to be objective. If this all sounds like you, the identity thing and being tied to an idea, don't beat yourself up. Most of the founders we work with start there. And luckily, there's a really effective way to decouple yourself from your idea. You have to do the uncomfortable thing. You need to speak with customers and have the center of your business move from your head to people's actions. There's a magic number in there somewhere, and it's not high, usually after three or four or five customer interviews, where a customer will say something and your head will tilt like you're a confused golden retriever, and you'll realize that there's something here, a problem this person is dying to solve that everyone else is ignoring, or a hole they've dug themselves that they can't get out of. You'll have a real, honest-to-God insight. Then you'll pull on that thread. Mike Tyson said that everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Speaking with customers is the fastest way for you to get punched in the mouth, which is what you want. Because as soon as you realize you don't have the answers, you'll give yourself a chance to go out and find them. And that process will be the foundation of your startup. There's a show called Stutz on HBO, which is fine. Stutz is a therapist and Jonah Hill is interviewing him about his methods. I did find one of the methods to be a simple but fascinating reminder. He calls it the life force pyramid, and it's a pyramid with body at the bottom, people in the middle, and self at the top. Whenever people come in struggling, the first thing he has them do is focus on the pyramid. Body, exercise and diet. People, go grab a coffee with a friend. And self, write in a journal. Do those things daily, he says, and everything else just sort of sorts itself out. It's wildly simple. If you just do those things, you'll quickly get to a better place. But people don't. The pyramid for entrepreneurs is speaking with customers and watching them interact with the problem you're solving. Do that over and over and everything else will take care of itself. But doing it requires you to do a few things. First, you need to find people who will talk to you. Second, you need to ask them the right questions. And third, you need to decipher their often inadvertent lies and exaggerations and then synthesize it all into a tight customer profile. Today is week three of testing out the chronic pain idea. If you didn't listen to the other two episodes, no problem. I started with the thesis that people with chronic pain need much better care. I wasn't sure exactly how or which people with chronic pain, but nearly a third of all Americans suffer from daily chronic pain, and it dramatically impacts their life. And my opinion is most types of chronic pain are treatable. I've lived it. I've spoken with customers over the last two weeks, and man, there is nothing like it. I've been punched in the face, reminded that I know nothing, and now I'm building up a picture of how the world actually works through people's direct experience. There are possible businesses everywhere if you know how to look and listen. So today, we'll go through what I learned, but more importantly, we'll set you up with some tools. First, we'll talk through cold email methods, ways to get complete strangers to respond and chat with you. Second, we'll hit on what you should be looking for in interviews. 
And we'll end with Pixar's and then framework to start helping you narrow in on a first customer you can build something magical for. This is our toolkit for seeing the present, which will let us build for the future. That sounds like a lot, but it's not too bad. We keep it tight and it all kind of flows, hopefully. And speaking of flow, there's a Tupac reference coming. Can't miss that, can you? And you won't. After, a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Getting strangers to tell you their secrets. Why the hell would anyone want to talk to me? That is the question most of our founders ask when we push them to go after interviews. But after two or three, the tone usually changes. They're more interested in how to get these people to shut up. Back in 2010, I ran interviews for a dating app called Find Your Lobster I was building. This was the first time I took a startup seriously, and I felt the same thing. Why would any stranger want to talk to me? But my mentor, who had promised to write an angel check, said that check was only coming if I could show proof of 50 interviews first. I remember the first interview I ever ran with a stranger. I'd walked up to this person at a bar and asked if I could call her the next day to ask some questions about my business, which I immediately realized looked like the lamest pickup attempt in history. But it worked. And the next day I called around noon and after some initial awkwardness where I had to say that I was the person who wanted to ask some questions about a business and that was actually what I was doing, I got to my first interview question. Can you tell me about the last first date you went on? My thinking was I'd hear about whether she'd used a dating app, how she met the person, and on and on. It was a good place to start getting stories. 45 minutes later, she was crying, emotionally telling me about her sister's divorce, and if they couldn't make it, a perfect couple, what chance did she have of finding someone? This wasn't uncommon, and it isn't limited to interviews about dating apps. Tacklebox companies have had interviewees break down into tears talking about everything from athletic apparel to HR software. And the reason is clear. When's the last time someone took interest in something that was painful to you? Asked you follow-up questions with no pretext? Tried their absolute hardest to be empathetic? Then promised to try and help you? And did it all without charging you 250 bucks an hour? You're usually less of an intrusion and more of a discount therapist. Once you get rolling with interviews, your problem likely won't be that no one can talk. It'll be that no one will stop. And you'll have a mass of information to synthesize through. We'll get to that later. But the first challenge is getting that stranger to talk to you. We talked a few episodes ago about the warm connections, and that's where you should start. Ask friends and family to introduce you, maybe pop posts on your social media accounts, and ideally go to any physical location you know your customer will be at and just start conversations. But a more scalable way to get interviews is through cold emails. And when I say cold email, I'm referring to any sort of cold message. This could be an email or a message over LinkedIn or a Twitter DM or whatever. Most people screw up cold emails for interviews, so I've come up with five immutable laws and a bonus that'll make it impossible for you to not write a good email. Here they are. First, no one cares about you. The rule that applies to every single thing you'll ever do as a startup founder. You are a distraction. The email you're writing is a distraction. The person you're emailing had inertia towards something else and you've stopped them dead and forced them to pay attention to you. 
In that moment, they hate you. You've got very little time to change that. Any excuse for them to leave in the first seven words will be enough, with the most common being talking about yourself. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I so-and-so. See ya. Number two, 10% you, 90% them. My good friend Wes K.O. over at Maven has a tactic that I love. After you write an email, go back and underline the parts that are about you and underline the parts that are about the reader. It'll usually start at about 90% you, 10% the reader. Don't send that email until the ratio is flipped. Number three, leave out the part the reader is going to skip. Read back over your email as if someone sent it to you. You'll naturally skim parts. Find where you're skimming and delete those parts. There are no rules with an email. The sentences don't need to flow. You don't need to introduce yourself. Don't write what will be skipped. Every word is critical and don't include a single one that'll halt momentum, thrust, and drag. Number four, if it sounds like an email, rewrite it. You know what an email sounds like. Hi, my name is blah and I am the blah blah at blah blah. Or did you know that blah 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 blah. People are weary of things that sound like emails. I know that sounds odd, but you'll recognize what I mean when you look over your drafts. ChatGPT will make this significantly worse because ChatGPT emails sound like emails and they're going to be everywhere. Number five, make it easier to respond than to not respond. The momentum of the email should carry them to a response. This usually takes some testing, but making it easy to respond or grab time is critical. Ideally, we're solving a problem. And number six, a bonus, because I love writing and the strategy behind it. Don't forget about cadence. When people read an email, they read aloud in their heads. They're talking. The more what you write sounds like a real person talking to them, the more likely they're going to engage. So cadence matters. You already know good cadence. You speak with it. Your sentences rise and fall. You give examples in threes. You break thoughts into digestible sentences. Editor's note, that was a sly three-example sentence to hammer home the point. So always read your email aloud before you send it. Make sure it doesn't sound weird and sounds like a person talking. I only took one writing class in my life, and it was in high school. During the first class, my probably 65-year-old teacher blared a sanitized version of Tupac's All Eyes on Me as we walked in and took our seats, saying it was the single best example of writing with cadence she could find. I'll pop the song in the show notes. If you listen to it or know it, you know what she means. It's easy to listen to. Make sure your writing is easy to read. So, for the chronic pain example, I really wanted to send those well-written emails to people who dealt with chronic pain. This, right away, was a problem. There are chronic pain forums, but most don't allow new members to post immediately. They're also pretty verticalized. There are military and veteran forums, forums for specific disorders, forums for mental health associated with chronic pain, and on and on. It didn't really allow me to single out the people that were actively trying to get better, my iced coffee customer. Further, people don't really advertise that they have chronic pain, and there aren't physical locations aside from treatment facilities that I can go and find them. So I tried a different hub and spoke. I reached out to a number of clinics that focus on helping people with chronic pain, and I asked if I could somehow get in touch with some of their customers. Maybe I could sponsor a newsletter if they sent one. The first couple weren't interested, but the third, and for reference, I was just calling these places directly and asking to speak with the manager, which worked literally every time, sort of was interested. Well, the manager said, I can't give you anyone's email. 
but we have been trying to figure out how we can find more patients. So if you share your results with me and tell me where I should be advertising or looking for patients, I'd be happy to send an email to a group of our patients asking if they've got interest in chatting with you. Perfect. The lesson, as always, provide value first. Help people solve problems to build trust. Edge of wedge. A few more calls to clinics with that positioning that I'd help them run market research to learn more about their existing patients and how they could find more. And I had three more clinics willing to pass along my email. Next, I needed that killer cold email. And there's a bit of pressure. I knew I'd be sharing it on the pod. The end of the email is always the hardest, the ask, so I always start there. What is something they couldn't say no to? My instincts around the chronic pain space are that it's a huge black box. No one knows what works. So maybe if they talk to me, I'd send them our list of treatments and resources that have been successful for our customers. That's decent, I guess. I could also get specific and offer to tell them the exact progression of treatment I use to get better, but I'm not sure how relevant it'd be to the person responding. I ended up going with the first, but recognized a big part of the interviews will be searching for that edge of the wedge problem I can solve fast. The thing I can do to earn trust, get emails, and ideally, the thing I can offer as a free service. Here is the cold email I landed on. Subject, tell your story to a startup helping people with chronic pain. Body, your chronic pain is a riddle you haven't been able to solve. You've likely tried combinations of physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, medication, and maybe even a medical procedure or two. Nothing has you back to normal. We're building a business that aims to help people who have had chronic pain for over two years feel like themselves again. We're in the early stages and hearing your story will be invaluable. After we chat, we'll send along a document that aggregates all the best treatments we've heard from customer interviews so far. Maybe there will be something on there you haven't tried that'll help. Grab a 20-minute slot here. The riddle is solvable. Brian. It's mostly about the customer. It hits on the big value I've heard from early conversations, which is everyone wants to get back to feeling like themselves again. And it makes responding, just clicking on my Calendly link, pretty simple. It's definitely a bit too long. Keep in mind everyone will read these on a phone, so read your draft on the phone, not on the computer you wrote it on. But I think it'll maybe do fine. I have four clinics that have circulated the email for me, and I've got a few interviews lined up already. This sort of work is hard, uncomfortable, and often takes a few iterations before you get it right. I highly recommend an accountability partner or joining the Tacklebox on Comfy Hours email team at gettacklebox.com if you're interested to get these up and out. They tend to be a massive bottleneck, but the results, as you'll hear in a second, can change everything. The search for and then. We'll start the last section of today's pod with a quote by Kurt Vonnegut that makes me feel a bit pretentious, but also admittedly kind of cool. Here it goes. Write to please just one person. If you open a window and make love to the world, so to speak, your story will get pneumonia. I think what he's saying is what I want to say, which is when you start this interviewing process, you're looking for one person, the person, the one you'll start with. This keeps you from trying to serve too many customers or, in Kurt's words, making love to the world and getting pneumonia. Definitely don't want that. So the question is an obvious one. What are we looking for with all of these interviews? When people are crying and telling us about their divorced sisters, what's that mean? There's an article I've referenced 179 times, apparently, according to Google, called Pixar's 22 Rules for Storytelling. It's written by Emma Coates, a story artist who worked on a bunch of movies at Pixar. 
All 22 rules are wonderful, timeless, and helpful, but one stands out here. Rule number three. It goes, quote, once upon a time, there was a blank. Every day, blank. One day, blank. And then, blank. And then, blank. Until finally, blank. This is what you're looking for out of your interviews. I call it the search for and then. And ideally, you find a bunch of people with the same and thens. I ran an interview with someone who reached out from the pod saying they had chronic pain. Again, if you've got it, team at gettackbox.com, email me. And after a long story, I can sum up her experience as this. Once upon a time, a woman who loved running marathons got in a car accident. Every day, she had headaches, despite going to neurologists and physical therapists and sports psychologists and every traditional doctor, quote, under the sun. One day, she was set up for coffee with a friend of a friend who'd suffered from chronic headaches too, and they told her about cognitive behavioral therapy. That was the first thing that really helped. And then that therapist understood her condition well enough that she sent her to a cranial sacral therapist who pushed things forward even more. And then that therapist sent her to a physio who specialized in lower back flexibility, who pushed things even further forward until finally she was able to run a marathon again. The and thens are the inflection points, the breadcrumbs, the things that tie customers together. If I decide that this is the type of customer I want to help, there are a few things the and thens help with. First, they help me find more of that specific customer. Athletes who are in accidents and lose something core to their identity might consistently go through that path. Maybe they go to sports psychologists. Maybe they eventually end up at CBT or craniosacral. Maybe we try to intercept them early. The and thens are the decision points, and digging in on why and how the customer changed their behavior at those points could unlock the business. Eventually, we'll need to become one of those and thens, so understanding the anatomy of the and then and making sure our first customer is uniform in their path will make our job much, much easier. During interviews, the key is digging in on the path. When someone tries something new, ask them to tell you more about that. What was their motivation? Who told them about it? How'd they weigh the costs? What were they expecting? What was delivered? The people who are able to predict the future are the ones that have the highest fidelity into the present. Understand how your customer makes decisions and you'll be more likely to be able to help them make the decision to buy your product later on. Plotting out an and then chart is something we do a ton at Tacklebox, highlighting those inflection points so that we can start to compare customers and choose the ones with the tendencies most likely to be an early adopter and pay a big margin because the problem for them is so painful. When this woman told me about running the marathon after five years of not being able to, she broke down. It had been taken from her and it meant so much to have it back. We'll end where we started, people and identity. For you, it's critical to separate your identity from your business. It's the only way you can test objectively and make the right decisions for that business. For the customer you're searching for, the one that'll anchor your business, you need to help them take back or reach or fulfill their identity. Help them become the person in the story they tell themselves. It's unlikely that any other type of customer is worth your time, and it's unlikely that any other business will work. That marathon story made me think the chronic pain path has legs. We'll keep going with it. We'll dive deep on first customers next week. The way to build for the future is to understand how things happen now with tons of depth and zero bias. This helps us find the one person we'll build for. 
because we don't want to open up the windows and sleep with the world so that we get pneumonia or something. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you have a startup idea and a full-time job, join us. Apply at gettacklebox.com and we'll get back to you within 72 hours. Have a great week.